it's Carlos here. Welcome to another episode of the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. It's World Book Day today, and we're really excited for our special guest. I'm thrilled to be chatting with Mark Randolph, co-founder and first CEO of Netflix. His book is called That Will Never Work, and it was a brilliant read about the birth of Netflix. With 151 million subscribers, it's hard to imagine a world where Netflix didn't have such a cultural impact. So it's great to hear about its humble, scrappy startup days. Let's welcome Mark. Hello and welcome, Mark. It's an absolute pleasure to have you today on our Marketing and Technology Book Club. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. For anybody not familiar, do you mind just giving us a little bit of overview about yourself? Wow, it's a, it's hard to do a short overview, but I guess the thing that I'm perhaps best known for is Netflix. I was the co-founder and I was the first CEO of at what at the time was a tiny little DVD by mail company, but... Uh, you know, complete surprise, at least to me, uh, has ended up doing pretty well. Pretty well. I mean, I mean, <laughs> that, that's, that's putting it mildly, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. What a story. But you know, these things do surprise you because when you start a company, uh, the last thing on your mind is, well, how are we going to get into every country in the world and how are we going to make our own TV and movies? I mean, you're struggling with how do I figure out something that actually people are willing to pay for? How do I get them to come back and do it again? Even simple things. This is almost 20 years ago, of course. Um, how do I even build a website that's going to be able to, uh, to work? Uh, you know, in fact, which really is uh, jumping into something, why I wrote the book, because people seem to feel sometimes that Netflix just sprang forth, like fully formed um, into some global streaming company. And I want people to see that this idea started like anybody's idea just a, a thought and then show them the path that it took to take this crazy idea that nobody thought would work and somehow make it real. There was a fantastic theme. And if I use a quote correctly, no doesn't always mean no. Do you mind sort of giving us a few examples from the book? Cause I think they were fantastic in terms of what it really takes to, to build that business from an idea to something real. Well, you know, certainly the no doesn't always mean no has some loaded contexts as well, certainly at least here in the States. <laughs> and so I am, um, I'll clarify that it's in, you know, it, it has to be used in context, but I'll give you a great story about where kind of the no doesn't always mean no really got cemented for me. And it took place back when I was in the university and I was maybe a year away from graduating and decided for some crazy reason, I wanted to get a job in advertising. And those were hard jobs to get for people who didn't have a advanced degree. Um, but there was one big New York City agency that occasionally would interview with undergraduates. And so I put my name in the hat along with probably a couple thousand people and then managed to make the first cut and got invited down to New York City to interview in a big group. Um, maybe there was now 400 people invited for this second interview. And then I made the cut again. And then there's 40 people. And we spent the whole day there. And then they cut it down to four finalists. And I was still in the running. And again, spent a whole full day uh, interviewing in New York City in this building and didn't get the job. I said, sorry. And so I kind of slunk back to, uh, to university, my tail between my legs. And after about a day of moping around, I went, this is crazy. I go, what was I missing? 
And so I decided I would ask. And this, of course, was before they had email. So I wrote a letter to every single person I'd interviewed with, not just in the last day, but every round with some variation of the same thing, which is, what could I do differently? Mm -hmm. What do I need to learn? If I want to apply again, what will make the difference? And then I got a call a few days later and they said, come on back down to New York again. And this time they offered me the job. And the lesson isn't necessarily persistence because the interesting thing was they hadn't offered the job to any of us because this advertising job was a business advertising part. It was a turning a no into a yes type of job. And they wanted to see which of us would not take no for an answer. Um, and it really said to me that when people say no, it doesn't always mean no. And that what it really means is I've got to understand why they're saying no. I've got to figure out, is there a way to turn this no into yes? And certainly in a startup, and it's certainly in one like Netflix, there's hundreds of cases where you're going to get shot down and turned down. And you have to just flip it around and say, what can I do to turn this no into a yes? It must have been so tough. It must have been so unbelievably tough. With what you were trying to achieve, with this vision you had, what kept you motivated? What kept you going? What kept you from going, actually, this isn't worth it? Well, the, the, the thing which is true for me, and I think true for a lot of entrepreneurs, is you're not doing it for the end result. I mean, maybe some people are motivated because they think they're going to get rich or they think they're going to be famous or they're going to be on Shark Tank or something crazy <laughs> like that. But if that's what you're in this business for, you're in it for the wrong reasons and you're almost inevitably going to be disappointed. But back when I started, uh, and Netflix was my sixth company, I um, was doing it because it was so fascinating to be solving these novel problems to figure out something that had never been figured out before. And so the disappointment that would come from testing something that didn't work was definitely mitigated by the fact that you always learn something from this failure. And it was putting together all these pieces. And whether you succeeded or not was secondary. It was, this is so cool. You were falling in love with the problem, not falling in love with your solution or with your idea. And I think that really goes away toward motivating you to come back to work the next day. Because it's not like, oh, my idea didn't work. Now what do I do? It was, okay, that didn't work. Now what am I going to try? And usually for everyone that doesn't work, you've got three or four more that you want to try next. And it's that enthusiasm which never goes away. The, the, the sort of DNA in Netflix, it, it really felt that continually testing and optimizing, and it seems true even today, that it was carried through the whole way through. You know, it is like a real genetic marker of being an entrepreneur is this sense of, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to go back and write a business plan or work on my pitch deck. I'm going to immediately figure out some way to take my idea and collide it with reality. And you're right. At Netflix, we were really good at that. I mean, you know, I tell that story in the book about when Reed and I were carpooling back and forth to work um, to a job we both knew we were going to be losing soon and think we got to come up with something new. And we had this crazy idea of renting DVDs by mail. We did not say, let's think about this some more. We just said, let's figure out whether the first premise is correct. Can you actually mail one of these? So we turned the car around and went, we couldn't buy a DVD. So we had to buy a music CD, which we said, well, close enough, and mailed it to Reed's house and found out in less than 24 hours that in fact, well, you could mail DVDs. And more importantly, you could do it in a day and you could do it for the price of a first class stamp. 
And that was something that set the course for Netflix forever. Anytime there was a good idea, any time spent debating, is it a good idea or a bad idea, was wasted time. That you want to take that time and that creativity and say, how can we test it? And how can we test it quickly? And we got really, really good at testing lots of things really quickly. Just literally this week, I was chatting to the team and there's a particular area to our business where I've been trying too hard to, to do something smart and just need to go live. And we've literally just been talking about it. Just We're just going to get something out. We need to just move. And it is, it's, it's super interesting hearing you describe it that way. Yeah, I, I always tell people that you're going to learn more in 15 minutes of doing it than you are in 15 weeks of thinking about it. And worse, when you think about it, you tend to have it in this beautiful, preserved, safe space where everything seems to go right. And all of a sudden you go, wow, just think what we can do when we have 100,000 users and then everyone's using. But then when you take that first step, you realize your fundamental premise was wrong and all that embellishment was wasted time. You know, and that, that the best entrepreneurs do that. They immediately take these ideas and collide them. Um, with reality. And, you know, one of the reasons that I, you know, wrote this book was that I realized that all of these tips and tricks and even secrets that I'd learned over 40 years of being an entrepreneur were so broadly applicable. And not just to someone starting a company, but anybody who had some idea they wanted to make real. This whole idea of testing, the idea of getting the idea out of your head, the idea of how do you recruit people to join you. And I wanted to not just make it an academic exercise of here's what you do, but actually show how we took all these things, which anybody has a capacity to do. And when you combine them in the right way, sometimes it turns into something uh, amazing. Pretty amazing. How did you get that enthusiasm? How did you build that culture? How did you get that buy-in, you know, to really sell that dream and bring people in that they would believe in what you believed in and could see your vision? Well, I was, um, I was fortunate, you know, that I launched Netflix when I was 38 years old and I had had a career of doing startups. And one of the things you do when you're doing one startup after another is not just learn how to do the startup, but you begin accumulating people who you recognize after going through lots of other people that they share this comfort with discomfort. They share this um, enthusiasm for being in uncharted territory. And that, so then when you have your next idea, it's like, hey, let's get the band back together again. And it's like a, a scene from the Blues Brothers where you're driving around and <laughs> grabbing up all your old teammates and going, let's try this, something crazy again. Um, but anybody can do that. And it's just recognizing that it takes a certain type of person. And it's not just someone who's comfortable with ambiguity, but it's somebody who has this ability to work in a very self-directed way to basically say, we're all going, see that hill over there? That's where we're going. And then don't, you don't see this person for two weeks because they're solving their own problems, but you know this person no matter what they encounter on the way, they're going to show up on time with the thing in their arms that they were tasked with, uh, with bringing with them. And that's kind of what makes for everybody working for a startup fun because you get this incredible degree of freedom to solve problems the way you want to solve them accompanied with this responsibility to accomplish the things you know this organization needs from you. So you, might, so you obviously do a lot of investment now and you obviously speak to a lot of startups and a lot of founders. What is it that you look for? What jumps out to you when you're trying to find people that 
that share that same thinking or that same approach and, and some of that smart process? Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, I've, I've been out of Netflix for maybe 15 years now. And as I said, that was my sixth company. And I since did one more kind of reluctantly, but I kind of realized you can't walk away from it entirely. And so my methadone, my recovery, my drug for getting off of this addiction is mentoring other early stage entrepreneurs. And, and I tell you that because you have, you have to understand why I do it, uh, which is very selfish, is that I want to be part of a business. I want to sit around this table with really smart people solving really hard problems. And to do that, you have to immerse yourself so you understand the problem well enough, you understand the product, the market, the competitors, the other employees, because then you can participate. And the other wonderful thing though, is I can do that and then I can get up and leave and go home. And those guys have to stay up all night um, actually making it happen. But that's a long way of saying the thing you look for mostly is do I like these people? I'm going to be spending a lot of time with them. We're all going to be in the trenches trying to fight the fight. And if I don't enjoy their company, I don't care how smart they are. I don't care how likely they are to succeed. Um, but I'm looking for, sm in addition to do I like them, I'm also looking for, do they have this persistence to keep trying things? Do they have this flexibility? And then most importantly, do they have this really rare combination of skills, which is the ability to have tremendous self-confidence so that every time someone says that'll never work, they go, yeah, I'm going to make it work. At the same time, though, they have to recognize they don't know everything and be willing to listen and incorporate other judgments in their um, assessments. And that's a very rare trait. And I, when I see that in someone, I glom on right away. And the fundamental test is if my phone buzzes at 11 o'clock p.m. and I wince, uh, then I picked the wrong person. <laughs> it's interesting you describe it as the ability to um, to also sort of remove yourself from the business afterwards. Someone described it to me recently as saying mentoring is great. It's a little bit like looking after a nephew or a niece or a grandchild because <laughs> you get the hand back afterwards. You don't have to live with the child ongoing. That's with exactly the sleepless right. nights quite in the same way. Perhaps the only difference, though, is if you're an aunt or an uncle, you can stuff the kid full of sweets and you can indulge them in all kinds of bad behaviors uh, because you know that fundamentally you're not responsible for them. Whereas uh, with a startup, when you're coming in, you can't be entirely selfish. You also have to uh, recognize that ultimately you have to do what you can to make this little this thing successful. But you're right. It's, it, it's a wonderful feeling to get in your car and drive away and uh, be actually be home in time for dinner with your wife and your family and know that they're going to be at the office until 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night. So back, back in the days, back in the days when you were having to put in the crazy hour shifts, I think it's super interesting, the, the stories you had around Blockbuster and Amazon. It must feel pretty special today to look back on those moments when, you know, you were an acquisition target that wasn't particularly favorable. And for two different reasons, for both of those two people that you mentioned, for Amazon, who, of course, uh, we got the call from Jeff Bezos very early. I mean, we had we were maybe three or four months after launch. We still had not raised no money except for our friends and family round. And the interesting thing about that is this was a business that everybody told me will never work. And then to get this call from Jeff Bezos, who back even then was the pioneer of e-commerce, was hugely validating. 
And then it was really interesting, of course, flying up to Seattle and finding that the Amazon headquarters was in this dangerous, dirty part of town, like with people, you know, doing drugs on the sidewalk and there's broken windows. And even the building itself was packed full of people and they were all sitting at desks made out of doors. <laughs> so, or two legs with a door across it. And to recognize that this big e-commerce pioneer was pretty scrappy, just like we were. So that was a validation. And I look back on that and go, thank goodness we didn't sell to Amazon because that would have been the end of that experiment right there. Uh, maybe a few months after that, I was going, I wish I had done that because if you flash forward about two and a half years to this is, we launched in uh, April of 1998 and this would be the fall of 2000. We finally had cracked the code and found a model that worked, but because it was a little confusing, we had to give away a free month. And as marketing folks know, um, that's a pretty standard strategy, but it's expensive because every customer you acquire, you absorb the full cost of the free trial up front and then recover it slowly over months. So the more successful you are, the faster you burn cash. And the other problem is that this was happening right when the dot-com meltdown was taking place. So not only did we need dramatically larger amounts of money, there was none to be had. And so we did that thing that a prudent entrepreneur does when faced with that circumstance, which is decided to, as they say, seek strategic alternatives, which means sell us, sell the company. And the candidate was Blockbuster. And in that case, there was a different lesson because we flew to Dallas and they brought us up into this huge conference room and we made the pitch to combine companies. And then when they asked us how much we wanted to sell it for, we said $50 million, which to us seemed like an astronomical amount. And I guess it did Blockbuster too, because they basically laughed at us. And it was interesting because on the way home, there was this combination of depression because we had thought this was going to be the, the deus ex machina that saves us, the hand from God plucking us out of our predicament. The physical and the digital meeting, the two businesses yeah. aligning we, perfectly. This is great. We solved our problem. But then when they said no, it really made us realize that in this case, the only way out is through, that we're going to have to solve this on our own. And it made us double down to find a model we could do that was sustainable. It made us say, we've got to raise the cash. We have to cut expenses. Um, and thank goodness, in some ways, we didn't end up part of Blockbuster because now they are, you know, sadly down to their last store. And the $50 million company they could have bought is now worth about $160 billion. So some things uh, work out. <laughs> Let's um let's jump into today and streaming wars. I was obviously going to ask you about streaming wars today. Um, how do you see things playing out? There's obviously some interesting activity in the space. You know, Disney, uh, 28 million subscribers, I think they hear. Obviously, Amazon Prime is doing some very interesting things, and Apple, Apple TV. Well, so listen, I am I am delighted to see that Disney Plus has come in and that Hulu is there and that Peacock is about to launch and HBO Plus. I mean, it, in my opinion, it's all good news. And there's a bunch of reasons that I think that. And the first one is it's a validation. I mean, we have been laboring in obscurity since 2007 with streaming. 
with everyone saying, this is nuts. No, this is not the way that TV is going to be delivered. And little by little, we've persevered. And I think the fact that all of a sudden Disney is going all in and NBC and CBS and HBO, they're all launching their own streaming services and putting big commitments behind it says that this is the way that TV is going to be delivered. This is the future that Netflix was right. And the second thing is I think it's great for consumers. You know, I watch TV and I don't just watch Netflix. You know, I watch The Mandalorian on, um, on Disney. You know, I watch The Amazing Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. The fact that we have so much great scripted TV um, is a boon for all of us. And the form is fantastic. It's not all stuck in 30-minute segments with commercial breaks. But the real reason I'm excited about all this competition is that is what keeps people on their toes. Having competition is what will keep Netflix and all the others sharp. And ultimately, that is what creates categories. That's what leads us forward. And I don't think they're going to cannibalize each other. I mean, if you think about it, Netflix has 160 million subscribers. And you go, wow, that's a lot. But YouTube has 2 billion active users. And you think about the number of smartphones that are in the world. It's like 4 billion or something like that. There is a long way to go. I think what we're seeing is all the streamers collectively together penetrating that currently untapped market, not necessarily cannibalizing from each other. And how do you see um, how do you see Netflix evolving? Could you imagine a scenario where they acquire something like Spotify? Uh, I, I I don't work at Netflix, and I haven't worked there for a long time, so I couldn't comment on what their specifics are. But I don't see it. I think, in fact, one of the reasons that. I wrote the book was kind of to tell this untold story of how Netflix got started, not just as a history lesson, but because in many ways, the best way to understand a company in the present is to understand its past, its culture. And Netflix's culture is very much about focus, about picking one thing that you do well and putting the blinders on and plugging away at that, which is why you won't see Netflix doing advertising supported, which is why they do one thing, as opposed to a Disney, which has theme parks, which has cruise lines, you know, and Apple has telephones and computers. Mm -hmm. Um, Netflix does one thing. And so I don't expect that they're going to begin doing Spotify and doing music. They've got their hands full. The flip side, I suppose, for an Apple or for an Amazon Prime is they've got the ability to to not quite, not make a loss, but ultimately if they've got other ways in which they can monetize that audience and access, they've got the ability to keep pushing more and more cash into content creation or its distribution. And I, I think that if they, I don't think Netflix has that problem. And again, I don't know the detail of the, uh, the balance sheet, but certainly there's a virtuous circle here, which is the more subscribers you have, the more money you spend on content, the more content you have, the more you spend on, um, on, on subscribers you know, then more subscribers are happy and it keeps building on itself. And I don't think there are any danger, at least in the short term, of uh, needing additional ways to monetize those customers, which I think just ends up distracting you. To where it's come, it's, it's amazing to see how much original content is being created. 
it's funny too because back when they did the original you know um stars deal everyone thought they're crazy they're spending a mil- several million dollars on this full catalog and then they thought oh my gosh they're crazy to spend that much money per episode on house of cards and then you go, oh, well, spending millions of dollars on each episode of The Queen. And each time these barriers get pushed. You know, now we should, saw that Peacock spent $500 million to bring back, uh, you know, friends. I mean, it's astonishing to me what's happening in content. But you're right. It allows that people to do things which are of a scale that's unimaginable. I wanted to ask you also a couple of other bits. Um, one thing that I thought was absolutely fantastic from your book was um, the advice your dad gave you, the the list. So uh, one of the things that at the end of the book I reveal is that when I got my very, very first job um, and I was about to start like on a Monday and that weekend my dad called me in and tore a page off of a yellow pad and handed it to me and on it he'd written in pen uh, off the top of his head uh, what he called the Randolph rules of success. And these were not business tips. This was not, you know, happiness is positive cash flow or, you know, buy low and sell high or anything like that. It was basically instructions about how to be a decent person. It was things like always do 10% more than you're asked. It was be open-minded, but skeptical. Um, and these are, I think that set the tone for one of my primary beliefs about what it requires to be successful as an entrepreneur. And in the book, you'll see the other, um, other eight um, reasons, other eight rules. Um, but it's that these things that I've learned uh, from Netflix and my other companies are things that all of us have. And we all try to pretend that being successful as an entrepreneur requires you to be superhuman or to work like crazy. And I, what I really hope to show with this book was that that's not the case. You can be a real person. You can have real relationships with your employees. You can preserve a life where you stay best friends with your spouse and have grow up with your children knowing you and liking you and have time to pursue your habits and still um, be successful um, in business. I think that was a, the beautiful part of the book because I'll be honest with you, I, it's not the most common story. <laughs> <laughs> no, too much of it, right? This is, a glor- this is this weird glorification of the entrepreneur. The hustle um, porn. <laughs> look how, exactly. Look how smart I am. And you have to recognize how much luck goes into this and you have to recognize that if you're not in it for the right reasons, you're going to be in trouble. And that if you most importantly subjugate your entire life to the pursuit of something, what's the point of that? I mean, I tell the story in the book that early on, before Netflix, my wife and I developed this habit where every Tuesday at five o'clock PM, I would leave the office and we would have a date night. And at first that was hard because there is big crisis. Well, we better solve this before five or I have to talk to you. Let's talk on the way to the car. Um, but the great thing that happens is that, you know, after a while people realize you're serious and then something better happens, which is that we all talk about balance and we all talk about how important it is to spend time. But then when they see the CEO actually doing it, it means that this culture is real. 
and then they begin doing it. And then you've really accomplished something in your business. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I just want to thank you again for your time and just say what a fantastic book. Um, I'm sure for anybody that hasn't yet picked up a copy, having chatted with you today, hopefully they've got a good idea of just what a great book it is. Yeah, well, thanks so much. It was so fun um, writing it. And I really hope everyone uh, gets something out of it and uh, pursues something successfully. But thanks for your time. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. Definitely grab a copy of That Will Never Work. The Birth of Netflix is a truly inspiring read. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And join us next time when we'll be chatting to Vice Chairman of Ogilvy, Rory Sutherland, about his excellent book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Thank you.